Asia-Pacific Currents. News and labour issues from the Asia-Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock. On Community Radio 3CR. All views of the world should unite by this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. Good morning and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents this Saturday, the 6th of August. For those of you who don't remember the significance of today, it commemorates 77 years since the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Uh, Of course, in three days' time, it'll be the anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bomb on Nagasaki. I'm Giselle Hanna and I'm taking you through to 9.30 this morning. Today's show will actually be a remembrance of those events um, 77 years ago Uh, and I have for you a speech today by one of the survivors of that bombing. Um, So uh, we're going to hear a speech today from Setsuko Tulo Thurlow. Um, She is a survivor of the bombing in Hiroshima. This is a speech that she delivered in 2019. She is one of the campaigners, one of the founding members of ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Of course, um, they won the Nobel Prize for Peace in 2017. She was one of the people who accepted um, that Nobel um, Prize for Peace. So we're going to go straight into this speech by Setsuko Thulo. You have no idea how delighted I am to be here. I really am. Now, I'll just speak from the heart. And of course, my experience as a victim on that day and aftermath, and since then, 74 years passed. So, talking about my own personal life, my family life, and collective memories of Hibaksha. Well, I'll start with my own personal experience. Well, I have been speaking to people like you at the churches, high schools, labor unions, anywhere people show interest in nuclear weapon issue. I speak because I feel it is my responsibility as somebody who have intimate knowledge of what those horrific thing can do to human beings. I consider it my moral responsibility. And it's the mission that I keep speaking about this uh, to as many people around the world. That's what I have been doing. Um, As mentioned, I was a 13-year-old girl, a grade eight, junior high school student, but Japan was losing badly in war. We couldn't afford to stay in the classroom and study. We were mobilized by the army, by city governments, and so on, to provide the cheap labor. Um, That very morning, I was at the military headquarters, not at the school. 
but three weeks prior to that, uh, about the group of 30 students were uh, recruited, and we started getting the training at Army headquarters how to deal with the top secret uh, messages. So we learned how to decode those. Can you imagine 13 year old girls dealing with the nation's top secret information? How desperate Japan was. So I met the girl, the group of 30 students at the station. We walked to the military headquarters and walked into the big wooden building. We went up to the second floor and which was located about one mile from the ground zero. And at sharp at eight o'clock, the assembly started and Major and I was giving us the pep talk. This is the day you prove your patriotism to the emperor, do your best and so on. We said, yes sir, we'll do our best. Then at that second, I saw the blinding bluish-white flash in the window. Then I had the sensation of floating up in the air. When I regained the consciousness, I found myself pinned under the collapsed building. Total silence, total darkness. I tried to move my body, but I couldn't. So I knew I was faced with death. It was strange. I wasn't panic-stricken in that condition. I calmly accept facing death. Then I started hearing faint voices of my classmates. Mother, help me. God, help me. So I knew I was not alone in that darkness. Then all of a sudden, somebody started shaking my left shoulder from behind. Strong male voice said, don't give up, don't give up, keep moving, keep kicking, keep pushing. I'm trying to free you. You see the sun ray coming through that opening. Crawl toward it. Get out of here as quickly as possible. To make a long story short, that's what I did in the darkness. By the time I came out of the building, a building, no, there wasn't a building, the rubble, I should say, the rubble was on fire. I looked back and thought about my girlfriends in there, in the same room, but no way I, I could go back into the flame. So that meant about 30 other girls who were with me in the same room were all burned to death alive. I looked around, although it happened in the morning, it was dark, perhaps because of the smoke and soot and the particle in the air, which was rising in the mushroom cloud. So it took me some while before my eyes got adjusted. And then I began to see some moving dark object approaching to me. And finally, I figured out they were injured people desperately shuffling from the center of the city 
to the outskirts. The man said, soldier said, well, you girls, I and two other girls, you girls joined that procession and escaped to the nearby hill. That's what we did. And we learned how to step over the dead bodies. And um, we managed to escape. At the foot of the hill, there was a huge military training ground about the size of two football fields. Quite a big place. By the time I got there, the place was packed with the dead bodies and dying people. Some grown, but mostly begging voices, very faint voices. Water, please. Water, please. Nobody was yelling, hey, I'm in trouble. Give me water. Nobody had that kind of physical and psychological strength. Just simply begged for water. We wanted to be use, useful because we were lightly injured. We went to the nearby stream, washed off the blood and the dirt, and we tore off our blouses and soaked them in the water and dashed back and put that over the mouth of the dying people who just, <laughs> they just um, sucked in the moisture. That was a level of so-called rescue operation. I quickly looked around and see if there were help, any healthcare professional helping. But of course not. They too, I learned later about 80% of the medical professionals, nurses were killed. They were too killed. But the remaining people were working at some other places, I think, but not where I was. So uh, it, it looked rather hopeless kind of situation, but at least we were doing something people were asking for. And we kept, three of us kept doing that all day. When the darkness fell, we sat on the hill. And all night, we watched the entire city burn, feeling numbed from massive death and human suffering we had witnessed all day. That is my first day. I can't, well, in my family, I lost nine members, my close family, uncle, aunts, cousins, sister, nephew, sister-in-law, and so on. Um, the, the injury was caused by the blast and the heat, heat of about three to four 4,000 degrees Celsius at the ground level. I understand the explosion took place up there. In the center of that explosion, the heat was way over 1 million degrees Celsius, but that fireball descended to the ground where human beings are living. And they were simply incinerated. 
some are vaporized, some are carbonized. Um, majority of the girls from my girls' high school were in the center part of the city, together with the grade seven and grade eight students from all the high schools in the city. The city had a special project. They wanted to be prepared for the incendiary attack by the Americans. So to be prepared for that, they destroyed the buildings and to widen the streets. And uh, they called it the fire lane. They were building that. The cheap labor came from the students. So seven to 8,000 students, grade seven, eight students brought to that point in the center part of the city. So majority of my schoolmates were there. I was at the army headquarters. That's why I think I, I am still alive today. Anyway, and those people had no chance to survive, most of them simply paid price. But there was one girl, my best friend, who happened to be there, who survived and came back and told us what their last minutes were like. Everybody was so badly burned, and the math teacher was there supervising the girls, and uh, they couldn't walk. The math teacher invited the girls to surround her. So from my school, all the girls came in circle, and last thing they wanted to do was to sing the hymn together. And their favorite, favorite word, um, what is English translation for that? Nearer to thee, my Lord. That's what they chose. And together they sang, one by one, they passed away. So this girlfriend told us, the teacher said, those of you who can walk with me, let's walk to the nearby Red Cross Hospital. If you can't stand up, just hang on to my shoulder. So Miss Muramoto touched her shoulder. The flesh and skin just fell off. She could see her white bones. Anyway, she man they managed to walk to the nearby. Red Cross, a couple of days later, the teacher died there. And my own sister-in-law, my eldest brother's wife, was also supervising the high school students there. We never found her body. Maybe she's one of those who simply vaporized. On paper, it says she's still missing. Um, my cousin was there too. Anyway, we rejoiced when we learned that my favorite uncle and aunt survived. They were okay. No visible outside injury. But then about a week later, we started hearing, no, they were not okay. So after my sister and my nephew died, we had a so-called cremation for them. My parents went and looked after my uncle and aunt. 
And their description of the situation is that their whole body was covered with purple spots. And at that time, that was a sure sign they are going to die. And my mother said that their internal organs seemed to be rotten and uh, melting, coming out as thick black liquid. My parents looked after them until their death. I'm just giving you a few examples of human suffering of 100,000 people. At that time, city had about 360,000 citizens. And they all went through this kind of situation. Um, Well, that was a very day, and a few days aftermath. Well, I'll tell you that the next day I was reunited with my sister and her four-year-old child. They were badly burned. They were on their way to the hospital, walking over the bridge. By the time I saw them, they couldn't see human figure in them. They were like ghosts. Um, after about three, four days, they died. The soldiers came, they dug up the ground, threw the body into that hole, poured the gasoline, threw the lighted match, and with a bamboo pole, they kept turning their body their stomach is half burned, brain is not touched yet. Very crude remarks. And I, I was standing there, my parents were standing there too. 13 year old child just watching this so-called unceremonious cremation. So, oh yes, general condition was the people who were in the city at that time were generally very weak, very lethargic. They couldn't keep working all day. So the employment, nobody wanted to employ them. So there were all kinds of discrimination. But this, the, another big issue here is the psychosocial and political um, factor. You see, Japan lost on the 15th of August, about a week after we experienced Hiroshima. And then Nagasaki followed three days later in the chaos. Then the entire nation surrendered. And occupation forces started arriving. And um, General MacArthur said, well, I came to Japan to demilitarize, and secondly, to democratize. Well, we wanted to figure out what the democracy is all about. It was welcome. And one of the first things, well, his idea was great, but as far as treating the people of Hiroshima and Nagasaki was concerned, uh, General MacArthur did opposite things. Some good things, like the status of women, you know, equal 
and social participation by the woman, our financial system had been included, and labor union was encouraged to develop some good things, of course, he introduced. But as far as Hiroshima Nagasaki was concerned, he did those things, which had detrimental effect. First of all, the atomic bomb casualty commissions were established in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. People rejoice. Finally, we get some medicine. Finally, medical people can treat us. But soon, they were thrown to the depths of the disappointment because the sole purpose of this institution was to study the effect of radiation on human body, period, not to support, help the suffering human beings. You can imagine how upsetting this was. They felt they were treated as a guinea pig, not just once, but twice. Then um, there's censorship of the free press. Um, of course, the newspaper wanted to write articles about the human suffering in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But the companies which published those things were forced to close. Like Asahi, Japan's major paper, was ordered to stop publication because to describe human suffering caused by the bomb was not helpful to uh, American occupation forces. Instead, what a great scientific technological achievement the United States made by producing this powerful, destructive weapon. That was okay to be written up and for the world to find out. But the human suffering inflicted upon by the bomb was not to be written. So that was the censorship part. But that was not enough. They came up with, um, what's the English name? Confiscation. They started to confiscate people's diaries, correspondences, or some Japanese-style poems, you know, haiku and tanka and things like that. Their hearts were filled with pain. They had to release them. So they wrote the poems and so on. Those things. Photographs, family photographs, medical chart on information, anything which shows the human suffering was confiscated. 32,000 pieces, I think, uh, altogether were shipped back to the United States. I'm just giving you just a few of the things which happened in our lives. In aftermath of the bombing. Um, I was told just a few minutes left, so yeah. Anyway, at the end of the 
seven-year occupation. So soldiers left. We became independent, sovereign state again. Only at that time, the people started being exposed to the information that researchers, scholars, journalists, for the first time, able to get information, medical information, legal information, um, political science. And so only when you have all this information and knowledge, they were able to see our place in the historical perspective and the global context. Only then we were able to locate ourselves, what significance our survival meant. So I will jump to the conclusion, okay? So only with that thought process, with the aid of incoming information, we felt this was the beginning of the nuclear age. This was the beginning of Cold War. We were used as an opening game of the chess between Soviet Union and United States. So we had the moral responsibility as someone who actually experienced, who understand intimately what horrid thing these are. And if this be allowed, this could be the end of the world, the end of humanity. So we decided to keep speaking out to the world. And that's what we have been doing past 70 years or so. But two years ago, some exciting thing happened, and Bonnie was already talking about it. Finally, after seven decades of struggle, we have reached to this point. But this is only prohibition. We have to reach the elimination point when we get rid of all the nuclear weapons. That's the only time we can have security, safety, live. So for our future generations, we have the responsibility to do everything we can to ensure there would be future for them. So I guess that's all I want to say. <laughs>
others, a recipient of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICANN, um, Nobel Peace Prize in 2017. She was one of five people who received the award on behalf of ICANN, and she gave that speech in 2019 at the Harvard Law School. So that brings us, as I said, brings us to the end of the show. We'll be back next Saturday with more news and current affairs from the Asia-Pacific region, but please stay tuned to 3CR and to Palestine Remembered, which is coming up next.